Galatians, that was our Sabbath school for last quarter. We're in Romans now, which is great, because both of those books complement each other. And we have studied, uh, we've actually given three lessons, three sermons to the book of Galatians. So right now, just to catch you up, those of you who are visiting, we're in Galatians chapter 2, and we're going to be studying verses 11 through 21. And verse 21, of course, was our scripture reading uh, in Galatians chapter 2. So that's where we are right now. In our last study in Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10, um, Paul basically described his second visit to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion. And the reason why Paul went to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion was because he was receiving opposition from Judaizers. These were Christians, believers in Christ, who had come out of the Jewish faith and were basically trying to add to the gospel this uh, added requirement for salvation of keeping the law of Moses. And Paul was being dogged by the Judaizers, and so he finally went to Jerusalem, and they had a big council there to clarify what the gospel actually was. And during that council, it was determined, it was, it was established, according to Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, that the gospel that Paul was preaching was the same gospel that Peter was preaching, was the same gospel that James was preaching, was the same gospel that John was preaching. They were all on the same page. They were all preaching the same gospel. And I guess that's important. I guess it's important for the church then and for the church now to know that we're all preaching the same gospel. I guess that's really important because the Bible tells us there are a lot of other gospels out there. There there are things that are coming under the guise of the gospel that are not really the gospel. And so the reason why I think this letter is so important to us is because Paul not only establishes the fact that he was preaching the same gospel, but as we go on now in Galatians 2, verses 11 through 21, and Galatians 3 and 4 and 5, we're going to find out, and 6, what that gospel actually was. What was this gospel that they were all preaching together? So that's where we are now. We're in Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 21, and, and the scene actually changes now from Jerusalem, where Paul was previously in his last few verses to the capital to 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 Antioch which is the chief city of Syria so Jerusalem is the capital of Israel of of where the Jews are but now we're in Syria now we're in Antioch and we are here in a place in a position where there's some intensity that's taking place between the leaders of the Christian church Antioch is the first place we're told in the Bible where God's people were called Christians And it was because of the way they carried themselves. They gave this message about Christ and they acted like Christ, the person they were describing, acted. They were like Christ. So people started calling them Christians. That's where we get our name from. And it's a beautiful and powerful heritage that we have of this name. And so in Antioch, we find, without a doubt, the most tense and dramatic episode in the New Testament, we find here two leading apostles of Jesus Christ face-to-face in open conflict. There's a conflict that takes place here between Paul and Peter. And we need to find out what prompted this public opposition to Peter that Paul had I mean, did he lose his temper? Was he upset about some insignificant little detail? After all, Peter was 
was chosen by God, you know, to be the apostle to the Gentile, to the Jews, and Paul was chosen to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So was, was Paul upset because Peter was coming into his territory? Like, this is my territory. You know, sometimes these are the kind of struggles, the kind of issues that we have, like, like you go to that church and I go to this church, and that's your territory and this is my territory. And I'm so glad that we don't feel that way here in Fall Creek. We don't mind anyone visiting our church, and we totally understand if you want to go visit another church, because we're all part of the sisterhood of churches, right? This is one big family, and we have no lines or barriers. Is that what Paul and Peter were arguing about? Was, was Paul upset about that? Was he trying to downplay Peter like uh, one presidential candidate downplays another? Was there jealousy? Was there envy between them? So the truth of the matter is none of these are really true, but... Before we consider the issue in this passage, there are a few important points that we need to consider. And one of those points is is that, well, I'm going to list five of them for you. Here's the first one. Both Paul and Peter were born-again Christians. Okay, We're going to talk about a conflict right now that they had, but we need to understand both of them were born-again Christians. Number two, both were used by God mightily and, and we discover this because the first half of the book of Acts is all about Peter and how God used Peter. And the second half is all about Paul and how God used Paul. So right there in the Bible, we know both of these men were used in a mighty way. Number three, or excuse me, number four. Oh, excuse me, number two. I missed number two. So number one, they were both born, in Christian, born again Christians. Number two, they were both apostles of Jesus Christ apostles. And then number three, they were both used mildly by God, Acts, first half Peter, second half Paul. And then number four, both of them played a leading role in establishing the Christian church. And then number five, both of them actually end up dying as martyrs for Christ. So both of them are faithful to the very end. In fact, they both die within the same year in the same city of Rome. So we know that they're born again. We know they're apostles. We know that they were, were um, used mightily of God. We know they were faithful to the very end. And we know that God used them in a wide way to establish the church. No question about their authenticity. And yet here we find them in open conflict. And we're going to understand this as we look at verses uh, 11 through 21 of Galatians chapter 2. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, again, we just want to pause. We want to thank you for the opportunity we have to read your word. We want to thank you for the fact that what we're about to study shows us that we're human. And that's the reason why we have a gospel. That's the reason why we have Jesus Christ covering us. That's the reason why we have a Savior who's got our back. Because when our humanness is discovered, and sometimes, as in this case, is written down in the Bible as a, a record of fact passed on to generation after generation, and I guess we're thankful that our human frailties aren't recorded in your word and written on, but yet in a way they are, because what we're about to read about the folly and the failures of Peter are really the follies and the failures of our own. So, Father, open our hearts, guide our minds, convict us with your Holy Spirit today. Help us to recognize where we, where we are moved away from the gospel and, again, reestablish our feet on Jesus, that we can be like Jesus. Father, we pray in his name. Amen.
All right, let's read Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. When Cephas, that is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But after, excuse me, when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Now, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you're a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now let's just pause there for a second and ask the question, what is Paul saying here? What is his point? The first thing he says is, is when Peter came to Antioch. Now as already mentioned, Antioch was this chief city in Syria. It was an important place, not only for the commercial world, but it was also an important place for Christianity because this is where Christians lived so much like Christ or God's people lived so much like Christ that they began to call them Christians. They noticed this about them, and they began to call them Christians. So they lived the gospel. So the moment Peter comes to Antioch, Paul withstood him. Why? Because he was to be blamed. He could stood condemned, it actually says here in the King James. He was in the wrong. What was he to be blamed for? Well, the problem was that, that Peter was actually separating himself from the Gentiles, when certain brethren, Jewish brethren, came from Jerusalem, sent by James, he was separating himself from the, from the Gentiles, and he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. Before these brethren came from Jerusalem, he would eat with the Gentiles. But after they came, he withdrew himself from the Gentiles, and he would only eat with the Jews. He would only eat with the brethren who were circumcised. Now, to understand this, we have to remember that in the early church the believers often ate what was understood to be a common meal. It's kind of like our fellowship meal. We call it potluck or Sabbath fellowship meal. Okay, this would happen in the early church where all the food was pooled together. Everyone bought their little dish. You know, they brought their salad or their main entree or a little dessert. And they pooled it all together. And they partook of this meal. And and for many people, especially for slaves who had become Christians, this meal was probably the best meal of the week. And of course, that goes for us who are single or used to be single. I used to be single. I'd always look forward to the fellowship meal because that's when I could really, you know, fill up for the week, right? So I look forward to this meal. Now, this common meal was shared both by the Jews who had become Christians and the Gentiles who had become Christians, even if they were slaves. They would come with their masters, etc. So to the Jew who partook of this meal, it was like a complete contradiction to his culture and his religious background. He had to completely turn away from everything he had been taught. Because for a Jew, it was, he was forbidden not just to eat with the Gentiles, but to do business with the Gentiles, to receive a favor from the Gentiles, to hang out with the Gentiles, to go near the Gentiles. That was forbidden for the Jews. 
So for a Jew, he could never receive hospitality from a Gentile, and he could never be hospitable to a Gentile. So basically, in the story of the Good Samaritan kind of, uh, you know, um, portrays this. Basically, for a Jew to now believe Christianity and become a Christian, he had to lay all of that aside. And all of those forbiddings were kind of extrapolated from from the laws that were given from, from Moses to the Jews. So the gospel, though, had liberated Christians, Jew or Gentile, and allowed all of these barriers to be broken down. The walls were broken down. And this was, this is one of the privileges of being, of being a Christian, being part of the Christian church. All the distinctions were removed. Everyone was equal. No one was higher or lower. The master came with his slaves. And when they came to the church, when they came to the meal, the slaves didn't eat over in one corner and the masters ate over in this corner. They all ate together and they ate of the same food. No one was better or lower, even though in reality, of course, one was a master and one was a slave. In the Christian community, they were all equal before God. Now, these Jewish brethren, who claimed that they were sent by James, they, they, they come, and of course, James was the main chairman and leader in Jerusalem, let's say, so they had some you know, clout behind them. They come to Jerusalem, to the Christian church in Jerusalem, and when they come to this gathering, um, Peter whose custom it was to eat with the Gentiles, left the Gentiles and went to eat with the Jews. Because, you see, when these Jews came to Antioch, they came with their old traditions. When they got there, they didn't just kind of settle into what was going on there in the community of believers. They themselves separated themselves from the Gentile believers. And Peter was led away with this hypocrisy. Now remember Peter's history. Peter was the guy who, though everyone else would forsake Christ, he would stand for Christ. He was the guy that had the sword in Gethsemane who would cut off the ear of the servant, actually missed him. He was actually trying to cut off his head probably, right? He was the one that would die for Christ. But at the same time, he was the one that denied Christ three times under peer pressure. You know what peer pressure is? Peer pressure is that subtle societal pressure that causes us to turn away from Christ, to to neglect to be a witness for him, not because we're threatened openly with antagonism and persecution, but because of the subtle innuendos, the sly remarks that undermine our faith in Jesus. We give in to that peer pressure, you know, that, 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 that... Subtle pressure that causes us to feel like we're left out, like we're not in the circle, like we're not included. And so Peter, these, these uh, Jewish brethren come, and Peter feels like he's not in their circle, like he's you know, at odds with them or whatever, and he gives into that peer pressure, and he, and he moves into their circle, which pulls him away from the Gentiles. Now, of course, that may just be a minor thing. I mean, it's just a minor thing, like, well, doesn't, he's just eating with the, with, the, with the Jewish brethren. It's no big deal. The Gentiles, you shouldn't worry about that, right? No big deal. Well, Paul didn't seem to think so. Paul was really upset about this. And, and by the way, as, you, as we read the story, we recognize that, and I, this is what I love about the story, that these leaders were human. They were human, just like we are. Peter wasn't infallible. You know, sometimes you think Peter was the infallible head of the church. You know, that's what we're led to believe. I was led to believe that as I, was, I, as I grew up in, the, in, in a Catholic tradition. 
No, Peter, Peter made mistakes. And when leaders make mistakes, those mistakes need to be confronted. And that's exactly what Paul does. Paul openly rebukes him. Because as a result of his actions, the rest of the Jews that Peter was there with, including Barnabas, who, who, who had stood with Paul in the Jerusalem council and urged that all of these traditions not be imposed upon the Gentile believers, Barnabas was led astray by his hypocrisy. Barnabas was actually separating from the Gentiles. This was causing a division in the church. It was, it would have, if Paul wouldn't have dealt with this, it would have led to two churches in one. The, Christ, the Gentile church and the Jewish church, if you can imagine that. And Paul says, nope, there has to be, it has to be one church. We need to deal with this, and we need to deal with this right now. So, so Barnabas, Peter, they're all being hypo, uh, hypocrites here. And, of course, hypocrite is someone who pretends to, to be good when he's not to be right when they're not. For us, hypocrisy is simply pretending that we're good people when we're not. I think the Sabbath school lesson this morning dealt with that. I had to leave early, but I know the title was very much showing us our standing before God and our need of a Savior. So the Jews, because they felt God had given them the law and had called them to be his chosen people, thought they were better than the Gentiles. And Peter not by his conviction, but by his behavior, was giving the impression that the Gentiles who had accepted Christ were unclean. And this was a contradiction of the gospel. They're unclean. We've got to eat over here in this little... We shouldn't be hanging out with them. And I want you to be thinking now, because, of course, we don't feel like all these laws are imposed upon us and that we have to follow these laws and separate, but I want you to be thinking about how we might be acting the part of Peter today how we might be led to do the same thing Peter does today in our environment, in our circumstances. Now, Paul was a great champion of the gospel. And when he saw this happening, he just, he couldn't. He had to, he had to rebuke Peter, even publicly, because, because this was a contradiction of the gospel truth in his opinion. Paul was understanding that it's important for this issue to be dealt with publicly in order for the gospel to be clarified. There's a misunderstanding here about the gospel when it comes to what Paul is do- or Peter is doing. We kind of have to place ourselves in the position of Peter and Paul and the Jews at that time. We have to remember why the Jews would not associate with the Gentiles. The reason why they looked upon the Gentiles as sinners and upon themselves as the children of God was because They had received the law. They had the prophets. They had, everything was given to them from God. And so they felt like, you know, we are God's chosen special people. We are the Seventh-day Adventists of the 21st century. We have the law. We have the truth. We have the light. We understand the prophecies. We have the Bible figured out. We've got it. And so, of course, our church is better than any other church. We're better than any other denomination. Our doctrines are all better than all the other denominational doctrines. And so we must be at a different level in our Christian experience than those evangelical, Pentecostal, Catholic, Methodist Christians. That's the mindset that the Jewish converts have. They just feel like they have a better pedigree than everyone else in the Christian community. So, as we think about that, we realize 
that when Peter ate with the Gentiles, he was admitting two things. That he, like the Gentiles, was a sinner, and that both of them were saved by grace alone. When, he, when Peter ate with the Gentiles, before the Jews came, when he ate with the Gentiles, he was basically saying, you know, there's nothing that separates me from you. I am saved by grace alone. I have no pedigree, no degree. Nothing that I've inherited makes me better than you. We're all one, saved by grace alone. When the Jewish brethren come from Jerusalem and they separate themselves and Peter pulls himself out away from the Gentiles and starts eating with the Jews and not with the Gentiles, he is not just saying um, the problem with the food, the problem with the, you know, the. he's saying basically, I no longer believe that we're saved by grace alone. <laughs> I no longer believe that I'm just as bad as you are. I believe that this is the company I need to be with. And that you guys are in a separate category over here. Do you understand that our actions and the way that we relate to people testifies to the gospel that we believe or don't believe? And actually identifies what the gospel is or isn't? In other words, the gospel is not just about doctrine and theology. The gospel is not just about these words, these fluffy words that we talk. It's not just about how we see God and can describe God, the gospel is about what we actually do, the way we live, the way we treat people, the way we interact with people. The gospel is very practical in its demonstration. And Peter had been demonstrating the reality of the gospel when he sat with the Gentiles and ate with them, and then he apostatized from that reality when he separated himself and just ate with the Jewish brethren. So it was a gospel issue here that Paul was concerned with. So Peter's behavior with the Gentiles at one point was upholding the gospel, and then at the next point, he was denying the gospel. When he was upholding the gospel, basically he was saying, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That, by the way, is one of my verses for the sermon today. It was in the quarterly. I didn't realize that. So when Peter moves from the Gentile table and he takes other Jews with him and he eats separately from the Gentiles, he's implying by this act that the Gentiles are unclean. He's giving ammunition to the Judaizers from Jerusalem who came under the guise of being sent by James. Now remember, when Paul went to Jerusalem 14 years later, he shared the gospel with James and with Peter and with John and they all believed the same. He said, I'm going to share with you what I've been teaching. Tell me if there's anything I need to change. And they said, no, it's good. That's what we believe too. They all believe the same gospel. But now in reality, in practical experience, when he's there in Antioch and Peter comes... And the Judaizers come, and Peter separates himself. He's saying in actions that he actually doesn't believe that same gospel. So, verse 16, let's pick up there. We know, Paul says, that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one... Jew or Gentile, will be justified. Now, Paul is saying here, Peter, you know the truth. You defended it in the Jerusalem council. And now you're contradicting this wonderful truth by leaving the Gentile table and going to eat with the Jews. And then he gives Peter some food for thought. And this is verses 17 through 21. And these are just earth-shaking verses. So let's just read them together. Verse 17. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ... We Jews find ourselves also among sinners. 
Does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so I might live for God. But I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Now, the life I live in the body, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And that's the title of our message this morning. Did Christ die for nothing? Did Christ die for nothing? So this is a really precious message that Paul here is telling Peter. First of all, in verse 16, Paul is summing up for Peter the fundamental truth of the gospel. Here it is. The key to this passage in the whole of his epistle in Galatians is found right here in verse 16. The reason is because it deals with the central thrust of Paul's concern. And that is justification by faith alone and nothing else. We're justified by faith alone and nothing else. So what does that mean? Well, there's an important word which occurs for the first time in Galatians, and it reoccurs right here in these verses several times. And the word is justified. Justified. Justified or justification is central to the message of God. It is central to the gospel Paul preached and it is central to Christianity itself. Now, nobody can truly understand Christianity who does not understand what this word means. What does it mean to be justified? What does it mean? The verb is used three times in verse 16. It's used once in verse 17 and then in a noun form it's used in verse 21. What does it mean to be justified? Okay, Here it is. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified, 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 justified. The word know means that Paul is telling Peter, you know this, Peter, you know this, Peter, you know this, Peter, you know this, Peter. It's here, Peter, it's here. You're denying it by your actions, but you know it right here. This is not something you're unfamiliar with. But the word itself, justified, is actually a legal term. According to the Bible, it's a legal term. It means to declare a person righteous. There's a verse that I want you to look at. You don't have to turn there, but I want you to have the reference for it. It's Deuteronomy 25, verse 1. And this is a biblical definition of the word justified. In Deuteronomy 25.1, the word is justified is used in a legal sense. Now, it's not used in that particular um, word, but it's one that means the same. It talks about how people have a dispute. It says, when people have a dispute and they, are taken to court, they take it to court, the judges will decide the case acquitting, and that word means justifying the innocent and condemning the guilty. So, In a court case, when there was a dispute, the court judges would evaluate the dispute and they would justify those who were innocent and they would condemn those who were guilty. That's the the use of the word in the Bible, justified. So when you look here in in the Bible, when when it talks about being justified, being, as it says here in Deuteronomy 25, uh, verse 1, being acquitted, it's talking about 
being found innocent before the law. And of course, in a legal case, if you were guilty of stealing or if you were accused of stealing, you were innocent, you could go to some judges and they could look at the evidence and they could say, oh, you're innocent because you, the evidence shows you didn't steal this. Or you're guilty because the evidence shows you didn't. If you were innocent, you could be justified, you could be acquitted because you weren't actually guilty. But the problem with us is, of course, we are all guilty. We've all sinned, Right? And come short of the glory of God. So we're all guilty. So there's no way we can be acquitted. There's no way we can be justified before God's law. We have no escape from condemnation except through Jesus Christ. And so, according to the law, the only way that you can be acquitted is by works of righteousness, that you're innocent, that you haven't done anything wrong. But but there's no way. I mean, the Jews tried for 1,500 years through good works and righteousness to be acquitted, but they can't be acquitted. They can't be justified. There's no way we can be justified because we're all guilty. So Paul is going back to this, this dichotomy, if you will, that we find ourselves in, and he's explaining to Peter and to the brethren in Galatia that there's no way that we can be better than anyone else because all of us are sinners, and the only way we can be justified is in Jesus Christ. Well, how does that work? Well, the phrase that is used here, we can't be justified by the works of the law, is actually a biblical phrase that is synonymous with the word legalism. Legalism is, because there's no Greek Greek equivalent to works of the law, so legalism is the word that we use today. When we talk about legalism, what we're really saying is works of the law, works of the law, works of the law. So when we call someone a legalist, what we're saying to them is, you are trying to be justified by the works of the law. You're trying to be justified by doing good things. You're trying to be justified by eating right. You're trying to be justified by keeping the Sabbath. You're trying to be justified by paying tithe. You're trying to be justified by doing the things that God wants you to do. And what Paul is saying here in Galatians is, you can't be justified by any of that because you're actually guilty. You're guilty of falling short of God's glory, and you continue to fall short of God's glory, and there's no way that your works, future works, can justify the guilt, the sin, the failures of your life. It can't happen. You need somebody else to acquit you based upon merits that are not your own. And that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus has actually come to this earth and lived a perfect life. He never failed, he never sinned, he never fell short of the glory of God. He lived in in a perfect life of complete holiness, and he did this for us. He didn't do it for himself because he had no reason to save himself, but he came here to live a perfect life so that he could give that to us as a gift, so that we could actually have justification in his life because we don't have it in our own. And what Paul is saying to Peter is, Peter you know that you're justified by the perfect life of Jesus. You know that. But when you start, when you, when you eat with the Gentiles, you're, you're, you're testifying to that, but when you leave the Gentile table and you start eating with the Jews, you're slipping back into believing that you're justified by your works. <laughs> Why are you eating with the Jews and not with the Gentiles? Are you trying somehow to gain favor? Because you can't gain favor with God and you can't gain favor with man. The only favor you have is in Jesus Christ. So you don't need to leave the Gentiles and eat with the Jews in order to better yourself in their eyes or in God's eyes. 
Are you following me so far? Let's, let's get this historical event now into a more practical dimension for us. So there are many Christians today who are going to limit that word justification only to forgiveness. If we're justified, we're forgiven, but, but, but it's more than that. So in order for a sinner to be justified before God, he not only has to be forgiven, but justification in the New Testament sense is a way, in a way is used uh, to mean more than forgiveness, but actually it means righteousness. Our sins have not only been canceled, but, but justification, as Paul preached, it includes righteousness or the right actions of the law being worked out in our behalf. In, in Romans 5.19, for example, he says, For as just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, many will be made righteous. So, so justification requires not only forgiveness, but righteousness. To be justified before God, two things are required of sinners. Number one, perfect obedience. And number two, perfect justice. And we don't have either one of those. We don't have perfect obedience and we don't have perfect justice. So only in Christ can we find both of these. Because when Christ lived, he not only lived the perfect life, but when he died, he satisfied the just claims of the law. The just claims of the law was, if you sin, you need to die. That's what the law says. Transgression of the law is sin, and the wages of sin is death. But we're alive. And none of us, none of us right now own the death sentence. Satan would try to tell you the death sentence is yours, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not. We're free from the death sentence. Because we have a Savior who has rescued us. He is our rescuer, right? He's our rescuer. He's rescued us from the consequences, the just consequences of breaking the law, the wages of sin, and he's rescued us from the disobedience of our lives. He's rescued us. And that is the gift of salvation that we have. And it puts us in a position where we are totally dependent on Jesus all the time for everything. There's never going to be a time when we can actually give to him some kind of obedience to to satisfy the holiness and the righteousness of God and his law. Never. We're always ever going to be dependent on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, his perfect life and and his justice satisfying death. Always. And so what that does is it not only takes the onus off us, the pressure of us, but it causes the true believer in Christ to be extremely grateful, appreciative, over the top, like, whoo, every single day, just flowing over with this, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. Now, how do you want me to live for you? And God says, well, I would especially like it it would really be appealing to me. It would, it would bring huge amounts of gratification, satisfaction to my heart if you, would, if you would love people the way that I love people. If you would treat people the way that I treat people. If you would actually interact with people the way that I interact with them, that'd be good enough for me. I would, I would just love that. Well, how are we going to do this, Father? How are we going to do this? Well, first of all, if you would just take the time to look at 
the first four commandments of the law and understand that relationship with me is the way that you can actually be like me, that abiding in me and, and just leaving off all those other gods and, and not bowing down and worshiping these different images, but, but focusing on me and letting me be first and foremost in your life and, and spending that time with me, which culminates in the Sabbath, but, but continues through the week so that you're abiding in me every day of the week and, and every hour of the day, just focused, focused, focused. And, and in doing this, you would find yourself naturally through me reaching out to your community and to your brothers and sisters in the church and to your family and just wanting to love them and wanting to experience relationships with them that are edifying and uplifting, speaking words and having thoughts toward them that are powerful and beautiful. That would be, that would be, that would be great. You would actually be restored into the image in which I created you. And as we see ourselves day by day falling short of the standard in God's glory and realize that God's got our back, God's got our back, God's got our back, and he, he has given us this gift that takes the demands of justice and satisfies them and gives to us the perfect obedience that we need to be fitted for heaven, we find ourselves being motivated by this great love, this great gift to actually live for God. We never come to the place where we feel like what we're doing for God replaces what he's done for us. But we continually are motivated to live for him by what he's done for us. We never seek to be justified in Christ. And at the same time, we don't ever fall into this idea of cheap grace where we feel like, oh, since I've been saved by the life and death of Jesus, I can just do what I want because it doesn't really matter. I'm already justified in the perfect history of Jesus that took place 2,000 years ago. So, in fact, some people accuse Paul of teaching this. They actually said that Paul was teaching that we should sin, that grace may abound. Since, since Paul was saying that where sin abounds, grace is much more abound, he says, well, just keep on. They said, well, Paul's just teaching that you can keep on sinning because then you get more grace. And what, you know what Paul said to that? He said, God forbid, God forbid, how can we continue to sin? in the light of this abundant grace that God has given us. Obviously, it motivates us to live for him because we realize how fallen and lost we are without him and how much his love has endured and how unending it is for us. So let's just close this up. Justification by faith means that the true believer says, I'm crucified with Christ. I don't live. Christ lives in me. It's not I, but Christ. And since Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the life that we live is the same life that Christ lived 2,000 years ago. It's a life of righteousness. That's why we're called Christians, because we're like Christ. That's why they were called Christians in Antioch. That's why when Peter got there and, and he was hanging out with the Gentiles, the Gentiles were like, yes, this is, this is so amazing. I didn't know that, that, Adventists were like, that Jews were like this, that they would hang out with us. I thought they were exclusive. And they only hung out with their own little groups. And they didn't really care about their community. And they didn't really interact with people who weren't of their church. That they weren't Adventists. I thought they were just like over here. And the Gentiles were like, wow, this really warms my heart. Uh, I think I want to study with these Adventist uh, uh, Jewish Christians. And then, a couple weeks into the study, these ultra-conservative Jewish Christians come into town... And all of a sudden, Peter doesn't show up for the Bible study anymore. 
And then they hear that Peter doesn't want to really be seen with them while the ultra-conservative Christian Adventists are in town. And they're devastated. They're like completely devastated. They're thinking, what in the world is this? This seems like such hypocrisy. I thought that we were all saved by grace. I thought that... And then Paul just runs in, and in an open public forum, he just, he just confronts Peter to his face, and he says, you are undermining the gospel right now. You can't do this. This is not right. Don't you understand? The fact that you were leaving these Gentiles to hang out with the conservative Jewish brethren is setting aside the grace of God as though righteousness could be gained through the law. And if you do that, Christ died for nothing. So I guess the way we'd apply this today, the way we would set aside the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ today, the way we'd make Christ's death for nothing today would be the same way Peter did. See, what he did basically was he despised the Gentiles. He felt like he was better than them. He removed himself from their presence. He looked down his nose at them. And that's what we do. Whenever we judge other people, whenever we pull away from them, whenever we refuse to pray for someone and instead pray on them, whenever we refuse, we refuse to P-A-P-R-A Y for someone, and instead we P-R-E-Y on them, talking about their defects and their faults, like Trump. How many of us pray for Trump rather than pray on Trump? That's the best example I can give, because it's the most controversial, I would say, issue around us today. But it is a test, if you will, a litmus test for where our Christian faith really stands. And it could be Clinton, it could be Obama, it could be any political official. How do we relate to people like that is what the gospel reveals to us. You know this because we've talked about it. Remember when we talked about Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. Remember when we looked at this verse and we tried to understand it in the context of how it reminds us whether we're trusting in our righteousness or whether we're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, where it says, Jesus says, He spoke this parable unto certain that trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And what did they do? They despised others. So Luke 18, 9 is the foundation of our litmus test. And whenever we feel, whenever we, in our, in our thoughts or feelings, whenever we feel like criticizing, judging, despising someone else, it's a wake-up call, it's an alert. Hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're slipping away from the gospel foundation right now. You're on a slippery slope. Because in judging other people, you are, as Peter is, moving away from the Gentile table and hanging out with the righteous brethren from Jerusalem, and thereby you are upending the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're saying in your actions or your thoughts that Christ died for nothing. And what we need to be saying in our actions and thoughts is that Christ died for every human being on planet Earth. And we can do that by the grace of God. And this is what I love 
about this whole section of the scriptures. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. So on the one hand, we are justified by the faith alone in the righteousness of Christ. And what we do, even when the Holy Spirit does it in us, does not contribute to that justification. And that justification includes not only forgiveness, but it includes righteousness. It's Christ's righteous life as well as his death on the cross. On the other hand, a justified Christian will always say, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't live. Christ lives in me. And the life that I and I live, I live by the faith of Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. And this, this is really the balanced message that, that Paul preached. On the one hand, we are justified by faith in the doing and dying of Jesus and nothing else. But on the other hand, this wonderful truth has set us free. It produces a life of holiness. It produces a life that reaches out to and impacts people around us. It produces a life that thinks good and pure and holy thoughts. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any faith, if there be any virtue, think about these things. It calls us, as it called Paul, to rebuke hypocrisy, to level the playing field so that all of us are saved solely through the grace of Jesus Christ. A little statement from This Day with God, page 300. I read this as a devotion. I'll be reading through it this this year. By the way, I just want to encourage you. It is so, it's such a, it's so powerful to have a little devotional that you're reading through. That every day when you get up, you just open up to the page for that day and just read. Just get those thoughts in your brain to start out the day. A Bible verse and some, some positive thoughts, some, some spiritual thoughts to just feed you, to just nourish you. Before you even maybe even get out of bed, before you get going with your day, just have a little devotional. This day with God is a great one. The Lord knows that if we look to man and trust in man, we are leaning on the arm of flesh. He invites our confidence. There is no limit to his power. Think of the Lord Jesus and his merits and his love, but do not seek to find defects and dwell upon the mistakes that others have made. Call to your mind things worthy of your recognition and praise. And if you are sharp to discern errors in others, be more sharp to recognize the good and praise the good. You may, if you criticize yourself, find things just as objectionable as that which you see in others. Then let us work constantly to strengthen one another in the most holy faith. I'm just going to close with this story and make it a little appeal. Recently, I went through a very difficult experience. I felt that I had been grossly mistreated by someone that I didn't know. Never met him before. It was a Craigslist deal that I was working through. And I wasted a lot of time and ended up being challenged with having very negative thoughts toward this person. And the thoughts were based on evidence. It was very clear what he had done was wrong. So I had the evidence to back me up. And in that moment, in that experience, God reminded me of the gospel. He reminded me of how I'm saved. He reminded me of my own failures and imperfections. He reminded me that I am not always as perfect as I'd like other people to be. (laughs) That I don't always treat people the way that I want them to treat me. And in that moment, I was able to jot down 
a few lines of the gospel to this person and tell them that, that I'm a Christian, that I'm a pastor, that, that God calls me to turn the other cheek, and that I'm so thankful that things will work out for him, and I, I'm praying for him, and I wanted to bless him, and I wanted to believe the best of him, and I wanted him to have all that he was looking for in this deal that fell through for me, even though he had made certain commitments. And I really felt free. I felt like, praise God. I mean, this is what it's all about. I was really upset about the deal, and that was ruining my whole experience in my life, and it was taking me down the wrong road, and I was just like free. I was just like, let that go, James. What is that? That's nothing. That's insignificant. Here's a soul. Here's a person that God wants to deliver, and you could be a means of delivering a message to him that actually bless him or plant a seed or do something to pull him in a different direction, and that's why you're here. And all this is, 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 is not a waste if you can just communicate that one thing. And you yourself will be blessed by that. And I was. I was so blessed by it that I wanted to share it with you because I thought, and I never thought I would ever share this with you at all when it first happened. I was like, oh, man, I just want to bury this experience in the bottom of the ocean. I hope it, but now as I've let it come out and I've let God change and transform it, I feel free. It's a testimony. It's a powerful testimony of the gospel. And I believe God wants us to have that in everything we do. And I'm just praying this experience will be yours and mine from this day forward. Let's close with our closing song from the praise team, and then we'll have a word of prayer.
he has done so loved he the world that he gave us his son who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in father in heaven we want to thank you again this morning for opening that life gate to all may we in our words and our actions be a living declaration of this gospel we pray in jesus name amen Have a great Sabbath. We have a fellowship meal today. All are invited. We have food for everyone to eat. And it will be over here in the annex. Over here in the annex. Over here in the annex. Mm -hmm.